This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Halberd. The orc's slavering warg mount charges forward. You dodge to one side, just barely avoiding the thing's powerful jaws. It's close, though. Close enough that you feel its hot breath on your cheek and smell the reek of whatever rotten flesh the orcs feed it. Springing to your feet, you drive the thrusting point of your poleaxe up. The orc, struggling to turn the mount, is unprepared and takes the thrust in the shoulder. But you're not done. With a twist and a yank, you catch its arm in the hook of your halberd and give a sharp downward yank. He struggles to keep his grip on the reins, but fails, and you pull him from astride the beast. If you've been playing tabletop fantasy role-playing games for a long time, and if you're listening to us, chances are good that you have, then you've probably lost sight of how much esoterica you take for granted. Of course, esoterica isn't the word of the week. But if it were, we'd explain that it comes from the Greek. Specifically, it means belonging to an inner circle. That is to say, it is knowledge that is limited to a specific group. The opposite is, of course, exoterica, which is belonging to outsiders. That is, knowledge meant to be shared with everyone. If you talk to any role-playing gamer, for example, they know what class and race are. People who have never played a role-playing game have no idea how class refers to a specific skill set, profession, or world role in the game. And those people think of race as the color of your skin and the shape of your eyes, not your species. There's a complex pile of jargon that's wrapped up in role-playing games. And, over time, a group that gets steeped in its own jargon becomes insular and isolated. It becomes less approachable and less welcoming. It becomes confusing, baffling, especially because the terminology itself is generally vague. Pin down any 10 role-playing gamers and ask them to actually define class, and you will get 11 different answers. Assuming they don't just go with the standard, it depends on the system cop-out. So today, we're going to discuss some particularly confusing gaming esoterica. We're going to discuss glaives, and halberds, and rancures, and spedums, and ox tongues, and bohemian ear spoons, and winged spears, and facards, and hooks, and bills, and bec de corbin, and glaive geese arms, and partisans, and feather staffs, and man catchers, and lucerne hammers. That's right. It's time for the polearm episode. You knew we had to get there eventually. There are just too many fantastic words on that weapon list. But the thing is, as interesting as polearms are to define and put into historical context, the polearms themselves are only half the story. The other half of the story is how the names of the polearms you know are utterly arbitrary and how the list of polearms in D&D grew out of another group's esoterica, which grew out of another group's esoterica, and how everything you know about polearms thanks to D&D is a big, crazy mess. 
Let's start at the very beginning. What is a polearm? Well, technically, even that is a tricky question. See, we think of polearms as two-handed martial weapons that give a reach advantage and do a lot of damage, or more generally, all of the weird melee weapons that aren't swords or axes or maces or hammers or picks. Now what's interesting is that that second definition is technically wrong, because a lot of the things you think aren't polearms actually are, though that depends on who you ask. Strictly speaking, a polearm is a weapon that consists of a metal head mounted to a wooden shaft. That is to say, a metal weapon or armament mounted on a pole. Pole. Arm. See? That's probably the simplest word we've ever defined here. But the funny thing about that definition is that it actually encompasses a lot of things that aren't polearms by the D&D standard. Technically, your two-handed battle axes are polearms. Or to give the more precise term, pole weapons. So are morning stars. After all, you might remember that the difference between a mace and a morning star comes down to whether the weapon is made entirely of metal or just has a metal head on a wooden shaft. In fact, the first polearm was invented the day some Neolithic hunter discovered that you could sharpen a piece of flint and stick it on the end of a long stick and kill an animal with it. It was called the spear. And from that respect, pole weapons have been around basically forever. But the things we think of as pole arms, the glaives and oxtons and foghards and stuff, that stuff, are much more modern. In fact, if you want to get really technical, a lot of them are a bit too modern for D&D. Here's what happened, at least in Europe. Around about the 13th century, the 1200s, war was starting to become a big, big thing. Whereas feudalism had been the predominant form of governance in the previous era, now the scale of things was getting pretty big. The Holy Roman Empire had swallowed a lot of Central Europe, and the influence of the Christian Church had increased the power of monarchies in Central, Northern, and Eastern Europe. Other kingdoms were starting to centralize their power. And during this time, the Crusades were becoming kind of a thing. You know, those massive wars first fought between Europe and the Holy Roman Empire against basically the entire Middle East. Well, the Byzantine Empire took the Crusades pretty hard. They were close to the fighting, and every time Europe lost one of its Crusades against the various kingdoms of the Middle East, Byzantium took the brunt of it because they were basically between Europe and the Middle East. And Byzantium kind of fell apart. And that meant the Crusades were going to get bigger and uglier. Byzantium had stood as a bulwark against Europe and the Muslim empires. It was the breakwater, it was the guard at the gate, and it had fallen apart. And suddenly, the various ruling powers in Europe discovered they had to field a lot more troops. War was just getting too big. The trouble was, if you took the average peasant and stuck him on the battlefield, he would get utterly wrecked by mounted soldiers and knights. 
not to mention putting them up against anyone with advanced training in how to use a sword. Basically, imagine drafting a bunch of random factory workers today and asking them to take down a column of tanks. And so, the polearm became popular. Polearms were fantastic weapons. If you stuck a weapon on the end of a long pole, suddenly you gave the average peasant conscript a lot of advantages. The peasant on foot could keep a soldier armed with a sword or mace at bay just by virtue of the length of the polearm. Put him up against a mounted soldier, and suddenly that conscript can reach the soldier way up on the horse. He can stab or slash the mounted rider. He can pull the soldier down off his horse. And because of the way he can adjust the length of the weapon and its angle, the conscript could attack upward toward someone's face, or downward toward their feet, and he could fight decently in close quarters just by gripping the weapon near his head. Starting around the 13th century, and continuing until pretty much the 1700s, the polearm was THE weapon to arm your infantry with. The polearm in its day was the equivalent of the military assault rifle today. Every soldier in just about every army had one. It was standard issue for basic troops. And that's where things get complicated. Everyone had polearms. And while there were really only a few basic types of polearms, there were a million variations. And, at the time, no one really cared enough to sit down and try to classify the things. Nowadays, we can talk about the M16 assault rifle or the AK-47 because, through the magic of mass production, we now have named product lines built by specific manufacturers under contract for specific armies. But back in 13th century Europe, things weren't so clear. To this day, medieval weapons scholars argue about how to classify pole weapons. As do hobbyists. Now here's the interesting thing about pole arms. They are really good infantry weapons. That is, they work great on the battlefield against charging horsemen and elite soldiers. They are fantastic in the outdoors when you have plenty of space, and they are just fine when they are all you have to carry. But they do have some limitations. For example, there is no way to stow them. They are big and long and heavy and clumsy. If you have a polearm, that's what your hands are doing. You can't strap one to your back or carry it in your teeth. So hypothetically, if you have to also carry a light source and a backpack full of gear and occasionally climb over a pit or fumble out a healing potion quickly, you're basically tossing that thing aside. And if you're, say, in a narrow corridor, inside some kind of hypothetical underground complex engaging small groups in extremely close quarters, you're going to spend a lot of time banging the thing into walls, ceilings, or your friends. Of course, that sort of situation would only come up if you weren't some medieval infantryman, but if you were instead some sort of exploratory strike team delving into underground labyrinths. What's more interesting is that a lot of the cooler polearms evolved outside of the medieval period. The polearm rose to prominence in the Crusades, 
but polearms evolved a lot from the 1400s to the 1600s. So why are polearms in D&D at all? By all rights, they are terrible options for adventurers. They are weapons for a peasant militia, not a crack team of underground explorers. What you have to understand is that E. Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson and their crew, the folks who invented D&D, they were military wargamers first. They used to play out medieval and renaissance wars on sand tables with little metal armies. And so, they were obsessed with polearms, the standard weapon for medieval infantry. And so, as D&D evolved from these war games, the esoterica of medieval warfare evolved into the esoterica of fantasy RPGs, and that esoterica was already kind of vague and confusing. Gygax, in particular, loved talking about polearms. He wrote two long articles for Dragon Magazine about polearms, and the thing was, the articles weren't really about polearms in D&D. The big one, the one everyone remembers from the Dragon Volume 3 Number 8 from February 1979, was called the Nomenclature of Polearms. And broadly speaking, it was about breaking down polearms into various classifications. It's a pretty good read if you can find a copy. A full discussion of polearms would be far beyond the scope of our little podcast. But broadly speaking, you can classify them based on what is stuck on the end of the pole, and then try to trace the evolution. So let's look at a few evolutionary branches for polearms. First of all, let's start with the humble spear. Flatten the blade and broaden it so that it's big like a broad knife or short sword on the end of a pole, and you've got the ox tongue, so named because it's wide and flat. Over time, a pair of little pronged blades got added, almost like the guard of a sword, and the blade got longer. And that is the realm of the partisan, the spedum, the wing spear, the spontoon, and the hilariously named bohemian ear spoon. The projecting side blades could be used to unseat a horseman, and also kept the thrusting blade from penetrating too deeply into your victim and thus getting stuck. Along a similar line, take a spear and keep it pointed. Don't broaden it, flatten it. But add some tines, prongs, or projecting side blades so that it's basically a spike with some hooks or blades, and you end up in the realm of the Kosekus. So named, because they came from Corsica. Now, let's take a heavy single blade, like a cleaver, and stick that on the end of a pole. That's where you start to get into some fancy single-edge swinging blades. For example, the Foucard, the Volg, and the Glaive. These weapons were basically all just single-edged meat cleavers. But over time, they evolved. The Vogue was heavy and had a back-curved pointed blade for cutting power. The Glaive has a long, thinner blade, and the Focard gradually got a bunch of prongs and hooks added to it to help pull down riders and provide thrusting and backswing attacks. Curve the cleaver blade forward, like a hook, and add a bunch of prongs and projections, and you get the bills and geese arms. And finally, Let's talk about what happens when you put an axe on a stick. 
you get what is probably the most well-known and popular of all pole weapons. You get the halberd. Eventually. See, the thing we think of as a halberd only really started to appear around the 15 and 1600s. It started as the simple bardiche, or poleaxe, and that's exactly what it sounds like, an axe blade on a pole. Over time, a thrusting point was added to the bardiche. Different axe designs evolved, and finally a hooked blade was added to the back of the weapon. And because it is so popular, so well-known, and so cool, Halberd earned the honor of being the word of the week. When you get down to it, though, and this is the part where we get to how you use this in your game, the halberd probably doesn't belong in D&D. A lot of polearms don't. Even if we restrict ourselves to just the things we think of as polearms, the halberds and glaives and partisans and stuff, we have to remember that there were 500 years of evolution during the era of the polearm. For comparison, saying that halberds and ox tongues belong in the same world is like saying the M16A1 assault rifle and the flintlock rifle should exist in the same world. It's just that we don't think of melee weapons as evolving technologically. But frankly, if you're going to worry about that, you might as well remove polearms anyway. They just don't make much sense in the context of the traditional D&D world. They are dumb weapons for adventurers. And when you get done banning all the pole arms, you can explain to your players why you hate fun. The real lesson here, the real takeaway, is that all of the pole arms of D&D are just vague, arbitrary esoterica that Gygax included because he was obsessed with war game esoterica that was vague and arbitrary and anachronistic and was based on the complex, vague, and often arbitrary jargon of medieval historians trying to find some way to classify 500 years of utterly incomprehensible and only barely interconnected weapon evolution across an entire continent. So they just aren't worth fighting over. This has been the GM Word of the Week. It was written by the Angry GM and recorded and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can find more at theangrygm.com and madadventurers.com.